Gentlefolk and all living beings, welcome to an auspicious occasion. The 200th episode of the Palace of Glittering Delights. And here are your hosts, Dandria Leyland. There are certain roles that have been portrayed by many actors. And because of those many actors portraying those many roles, just as many answers to the question, who was the best? Jeremy Brett or Benedict Cumberbatch? Christopher Reeve or Tyler Hooklin, Tom Holland or Andrew Garfield? Tom Baker or David Tennant? Of course, the answer is dependent upon a number of factors. Who you saw first, what age you were when you first saw them, and how well your nostalgia goggles cloud your vision. But there's one character who is in a class of his own in this regard. Bond. James Bond. James Bond has been trotting around the globe, preventing megalomaniacs from taking it over for nearly 70 years, 60 of those as a film icon. He's seen off many an over-the-top villain, implausible plot, and futuristic gadget. He's bedded two of the Avengers, one Starship Trooper and Superman's girlfriend Lois Lane. He's been de-aged twice and rebooted once. He's conquered every medium, from novels to comic strips, movies to radio. He owns more tailored suits than Tom Ford. He saves the world for queen and country, on average, once every three years. And nobody does it better. But he's no hero, not in the true sense of the word. Although he believes in freedom and democracy, Bond gets paid for what he does. A former naval commander and a refined Renaissance man, Bond has trust issues with women, is callous and cruel, and having achieved the almost legendary double-O status in MI6, isn't afraid to use his licence to kill with impunity. He's no thug, but beneath the calm exterior, his quick wit and disarming knowledge of wines hides an intelligent and brutally efficient killer. He's a male wish-fulfilment figure who lives well, enjoying what he can, when he can, because double O's aren't expected to live forever, Mr Bond. His appeal isn't difficult to fathom. He travels the world on the company expense account. He has the coolest cars, the most high-tech gadgets, the smartest clothes. He's happy to take as many women to bed as the job will allow, and equally happy to leave them the next morning. The ones that survive, that is. We've all wanted to be Bond, effortlessly cool, unflappable, unstoppable. Go where you want, screw who you want, kill who you want, be back for breakfast. The book Bond is deeper, more troubled, more aloof. On screen, certainly at points in his career, he became an almost unkillable superhuman. Less fallible secret agent, more superhero superstar. It's a terrible spy who is known throughout the world as the world's most famous secret agent. In the official movies, six actors have portrayed Bond. Sean Connery, George Lazenby, Connery again, Roger Moore, Timothy Dalton, Pierce Brosnan and Daniel Craig, with Craig being the longest-serving Bond thus far. To put that statement into context, let's say a generation is 20 years. 
from the first film, Doctor No, in 1962 to 1982, three actors portrayed Bond, Connery, Lazenby and Moore. From 1982 to 2002, again, three actors essayed the role, albeit one of them being a crossover, Roger Moore, who was followed by Tim Dalton and Pierce Brosnan. By contrast, from 2002 to today, 2022, one actor has portrayed Bond, Daniel Craig. Craig has arguably been the most successful of the Bonds since Connery created the role in the 1960s. He's developed Bond into a flawed, multifaceted character, a haunted and wounded man. Go back and read, or reread Fleming's novels. That's Craig's Bond in those pages. Craig's Bond bleeds, and more. One only has to look at the catalogue of injuries Craig has sustained over his tenure to see that this was a man who took the part seriously. Perhaps at times too seriously. Craig's Bond never seemed to be having the fun that the previous incarnations did. Of his five movies, though, two are classics, one is flawed but enjoyable, and two are two-thirds brilliant and one-third a fumble. The box office certainly seems to like him, with his movies making more money than the previous incumbent in the role, Pierce Brosnan, and Craig's third film, Skyfall, cracked the magic one billion mark at the worldwide box office. In the UK, No Time to Die made more money than Spider-Man No Way Home. Remarkable when you consider it was released in the middle of the coronavirus pandemic. Not since his 60s heyday has Bond been so popular. With 25 movies under his belt, it's undeniable that some will be better than others. In some cases, the formula was thin. In others, the elements just don't come together as well as they might. In still others, they start to age a little. When 60 years old you reach, look as good you will not. In addition, there's only so much deconstruction one can do of Bond before he stops being Bond. Ardent feminists and ultra-lefties, look away. We don't want a deconstructed Bond. Or a female Bond. We like Bond as he is. You want a female Bond? Go and watch Atomic Blonde. For the record, as of this recording, my favourite Bond is Daniel Craig. Overall, the batting average of his films have been the best since Connery. And he's really the only actor to portray Bond as a human being, with doubts and foibles and issues. Fleming's Bond didn't like killing. He was just good at it. And in stories like The Living Daylight, he even expressed doubts at being a double O at all, implying that he wouldn't be that upset if M fired him. He had numerous relationships that followed him from book to book. And yes, Vesper was mentioned a few times after her death in Casino Royale. Craig captured this aspect of Bond very well. And if he wasn't always as quick with a quip as some of the other actors in the role, well, the literary Bond didn't really do much of that either. Prior to Craig, only Timothy Dalton had even tried to bring the Fleming Bond to the screen. Craig's movies feel more like Fleming than many of the others, because, let's not forget, even Fleming tried to kill Mr. Bond more than once. And so, the ranking. As ever, this is my list. Yours will be different. I would expect nothing less. My opinions are not fact. Hopefully there are some surprises, some places where you'll nod your head, others where you'll wonder if I've lost my senses. This is correct and proper. I also have to point out, I like all the Bond films, even the not-so-good ones, and the list could easily be in a tie for positions 11 through 25. So pay attention, 007. There'll be a quiz later. Number 25, 1983's Octopussy. 
I trust you can handle this contraption, Q. It goes by hot air. Oh, then you can. It's not that Octopussy is bad. In this film, Bond gets involved with a convoluted plot involving Fabergé X, stolen by international gem smuggler Kamal Khan, played by Louis Jordan. Throw in an OTT Stephen Burkoff as a Russian and a lacklustre Bond girl in Maud Adams' titular Octopussy, and you have a thoroughly underwhelming affair. It's still Bond, though, so there's some great stunts, some wonderful one-liners from Sir Roger Moore, and elements of two Fleming stories, Octopussy and The Property of a Lady. It's not premium Bond, turning our lead into a literal clown, but it still whiles away a wet Sunday afternoon. The theme tune is terrible, though. Number 24, 1985's A View to a Kill. Wow. What a view to a kill. Again, A View to a Kill has a lot going for it, not least a great score from John Barry with one of his finest cues, the snow job. There's also an entertaining bad guy in the shape of Christopher Walken, and there's something just so right about Bond skiing. But there's no getting around it. More is well past his prime. The tone is set up in the mostly excellent pre-credit sequence. Sir Roger's stunt double does some of his best work, skiing past explosions and avoiding bad guy bullets, as Moore himself poses in front of an unconvincing backdrop on the soundstage, desperately trying to make us believe it's him doing all this stuff. The excellent photography and score are immediately offset by the jokey inclusion of the Beach Boys on the soundtrack. It's everything wrong with the film. It's complete inability to take anything seriously, and this robs the movie of its drama. Plus, the very idea of the then 57-year-old Roger Moore taking to the bedroom with Grace Jones is laughable. She'd break the poor man's back. As one would expect, the action scenes are well-mounted at this point, and they just about carry this over the finish line. Moore had been threatening to quit since 1979's Moonraker, and had serious doubts about even returning for this film. But after this sorry affair, the producers opened the door for him. Tanya Roberts is pretty, though. Number 23, 1999's The World is Not Enough. Do you want to explain why you did that? I could have stopped that bomb. You almost killed us. I did kill us. She thinks we're dead and she thinks she got away with it. Do you want to put that in English for those of us who don't speak spy? The World is Not Enough cements my idea that there are no such thing as bad Bond movies, just Bond movies that aren't as good as other Bond movies. Case in point, The World is Not Enough, which has a lot to recommend. There's a great pre-credit sequence on the River Thames, a good score from David Arnold, a sumptuous and deadly Bond girl in the beautiful form of Sophie Marceau, and we get to see Desmond Llewellyn's Q one last time. However, Train Spotting's Robert Carlyle is only okay as the bad guy Reynard. Denise Richards is lovely on the eyes, but not terribly convincing as a nuclear physicist. And the plot, Bond must stop Renard from destroying oil pipelines, a tad pedestrian. Brosnan, in his third shot at the character, has bizarrely settled into a slightly more dangerous version of Roger Moore, only less charming. Brosnan has matured into the role physically, a scar on his top lip adding some menace, which also evokes Fleming, whose Bond also had a facial scar. Sadly, he's just too damn smug in the role at this point. 
The writing doesn't help. All of his lines in the first half of the film, particularly the pre-credit sequence, are wince-inducing. Kind of lame double entendres Roger Moore would have balked at. Say what you want about Sir Roger, but at least his witticisms were funny. Bond has one genuinely funny line in this film. When introduced to Richard's Dr. Christmas Jones, she says, No jokes, I've heard them all before. To which Bond replies, I don't know any Dr. Jokes. Better is the subplot in which M, Dame Judi Dench, is kidnapped, forcing her to actually see what Bond gets up to on his missions, and she's a little horrified. Also notable, the return of Robbie Coltrane, the first appearance of John Cleese as the new Q, and Electra King and Reynard's relationship, a well-observed and different play on the usual Bond villain dynamics. It's also the first time Bond kills a woman with cold, brutal efficiency. But somehow... The world is not enough just doesn't fully come together. The action sequences are fine, but pre-credits aside, nothing new. The story never really dovetails into those same action sequences. Rather, the action scenes occur because it's a Bond film, and an action scene is never more than 20 minutes away. It's fine. is isn't really something one should say about a Bond movie, but the world is not enough is... fine. Garbage's theme is likewise... fine. Number 22, 2002's Die Another Day. Tell me what you know of James Bond. He's a double O, and a wild one, as I discovered today. He'll light the fuse on any explosive situation and be a danger to himself and others. Kill first, ask questions later. I think he's a blunt instrument whose primary method is to provoke and confront. A man nobody can get close to. A womanizer. Die Another Day is generally regarded as not only Brosnan's nadir as Bond, but one of the worst entries in the series. But, for its first hour, it's really good. Nobody captures Bond's massive ball-swinging swagger as well as Brosnan, especially in the scene where he struts confidently into a hotel, clad only in pyjamas, sporting a comedy beard and looking nowhere near his usual self, and yet still manages to carry himself as a confident bugger who owns the room. The main theme of the first half of the film, Bond is captured and abandoned by MI6, is well realised, and M is more ruthless than ever, showing no sympathy or understanding. Rosamund Pike turns in a good performance as fellow agent, Ice Queen Miranda Frost, whilst Toby Stevens sneers excellently as Bond's player on the other side, Gustav Graves. Stevens was so good as the anti-Bond, he ended up being Bond in a series of BBC radio adaptations of Fleming's novels. Sadly, halfway through, the film becomes almost too silly, with ice palaces, cloaked cars, and really dodgy CG. Sure, we'd already had a cloaked submarine in Tomorrow Never Dies, and a cloaked Aston Martin is no more ridiculous than an underwater Lotus Esprit, but the former seems silly, whilst the latter... It's cool. Madonna's theme is the worst Bond theme ever, with really on-the-nose lyrics about Bond's mental state. And too much attention is given to Halle Berry's Jinx, who seemed to be being positioned as a femme fatale for her own series of films that, thankfully, never happened. It's sad that this was Brosnan's swan song, but as with Moonraker, it paved the way for a return to a more grounded Bond with the next film. Number 21, 1987's The Living Daylights. I only kill professionals. 
goaded no one end of a rifle from the other. Go ahead, tell him what you want. Fires me, I'll thank him for it. Whoever she was must have scared the living daylights out of her. The Living Daylights features some great material, and the most realistic take on Bond since On Her Majesty's Secret Service, all the way back in 1969. Incoming Bond, Timothy Dalton, actually read Fleming's novels, and the first 15 minutes is pretty much a straight-up adaptation of the short story from which this film takes its name. Dalton is a lot harder nosed than Moore, and actually feels dangerous. He plays with many themes that wouldn't be revisited until the Daniel Craig era, showing dissatisfaction with his often distasteful job and playing up Bond's malaise. After being criticised for not just blindly following orders, Bond tells his officious partner, if M fires me, I'll thank him for it. The Living Daylight's main plot is also more grounded and realistic than the previous films. In this one, Bond is after an OTT US Army officer, Whitaker, played by Joe Don Baker, who is up to his neck in an illegal weapons-for-drugs deal, reflecting the then-current Iran-Contra scandal. Dalton is great at portraying a more driven, emotional and focused Bond, a Bond who doesn't really have time for the usual witticisms and womanising. Perhaps that's why he didn't catch on with the general audience. At the time, Dalton was just that bit too much of a departure. So why is it so far down the list? Well, it's not as revolutionary now as it seemed at the time, with one or two of the sillier elements of the Moore era still holding sway, such as the we've nothing to declare scene. The film also feels a bit flabby in places and could have been tightened up in the editing. It's also a little bit distasteful nowadays, seeing Bond assist the nascent Taliban, just as John Rambo did in John Rambo 3. Still, The Living Daylights does have a lot to recommend it, from John Barry's last Bond score to a new, grittier Bond in Dalton. We didn't know it then, but Dalton was simply the right man at the wrong time. Number 20, 1973's Live and Let Die. How much do you know about crocodiles, Bond? Oh, I've uh, always tried to keep them at arm's length myself. 007 in New York was an Ian Fleming short story that provided some plot elements for Casino Royale and Quantum of Solace. But for the big screen, it wasn't until Live and Let Die that Bond journeyed to the Big Apple. Sadly... He's not in a James Bond film, rather a black exploitation spoof, more akin to Shaft or Superfly. Bond isn't after someone threatening the world or tracking down a stolen earth-threatening device. He's after drug dealers. He's not really in his element either, hanging around with the kind of bad guys more associated with 70s TV detective shows than the megalomaniacal madmen Bond normally deals with. Because it's chasing trends instead of making them, Live and Let Die is, for me, the most dated of the Bond films, and not one I rewatch a lot. That isn't to say it doesn't have its moments. The theme is a classic. Jane Seymour is distractingly beautiful, solitaire, and who doesn't love Yafet Cotter? Cotto's Mr. Big also has the film's best line. Names is for tombstones, baby. Henchman Teehee is also fun, but it's up to your own personal taste whether giving the world J.W. Pepper was a good thing. In his first outing as Bond, Moore ditches a lot of the tropes associated with Connery. There's no scene in M's office, no vodka martini, and criminally, no Q. And these are further reasons that it just doesn't feel like a Bond film. Fair play to Sir Roger, though, his introduction is perfect. We first see Bond in bed with a beautiful Italian agent. They are rudely awakened by the doorbell. Bond, grumpily getting out of bed, asks, You aren't married, are you? 
Moore was a class act, and he exudes confidence in this, his debut performance, putting the series back on track and proving that there was life after Connery. Number 19, 1974's The Man with the Golden Gun. Good morning. How's the water? Why don't you come in and find out? Sounds very tempting, Miss... Uh... To me. Really? Well, there's only one small problem. I have no swimming trunks. Neither have I. The man with the golden gun gets a lot of flack. A lot of flack. Some people think it's terrible. They hate the theme, the setting, the appearance of J.W. Pepper. Everything about this film raises hackles. Personally, I don't think it's even the worst Roger Moore Bond film, let alone the worst Bond ever. For starters, the song is great. Lulu rocks it, and the lyrics, he's got a powerful weapon, and he comes just before the kill, and the best one, who will he bang? They ain't subtle. And then we have Christopher Lee as Scaramanga, a top-flight actor playing a top-flight bad guy, literally in the scene where his car transforms into a plane. Yet that's not the best car stunt in the film. That honour going to the corkscrew car jump, which is sublime for being practically achieved. A man really drove that car and really did that jump. Sure, the producers can't help themselves, adding a stupid penny whistle to the proceedings, but that's the Moore era right there. And what of Moore? Here, in his second outing as Bond, he's as assured as ever, still quipping, but still deadly, if a bit more relaxed than back when he was Connery. And yes, Sheriff J.W. Pepper, played by Clifton James, is an annoying stereotype. A racist hick sheriff, a literal ugly American brought to life. But he's supposed to be. In that regard, he's well played. Sure, there are elements of other, better Bond movies. Her villachayers is knick-knack and he's no odd job. And the quips aren't classics. And Brit Eklund was nothing very well. But isn't perhaps the best Bond girl ever. But it is entertaining. The man with the golden gun gets it done. Number 18, 1997's Tomorrow Never Dies. If you just sign here, Mr. Bond. <clears throat> it's the insurance damage waiver for your beautiful new car. Will you need collision coverage? Yes. Fire? Probably. Property destruction? Definitely. Personal injury? I hope not. Accidents do happen. They frequently do with you. After Goldeneye brought Bond back into the public's consciousness with a confident swagger, Tomorrow Never Dies carries on that feeling, something that is both to its benefit and its detriment. Tomorrow Never Dies is a meat and potatoes Bond adventure that has nevertheless aged exceptionally well. Jonathan Price's media mogul, Elliot Carver, is even more relevant in the age of Jeff Bezos, and his control of all media, an ongoing concern, where monopolies are looked upon as a good thing. Bond's mission is to discover how Carver manages to get his headlines almost before the news happens, which involves him teaming up with the Chinese secret agent Wai Lin, played by Michelle Yeoh. They make an excellent team, and unlike The World Is Not Enough, the action scenes complement the story rather than feeling obligatory. These include a great remote control car chase, but with a real BMW, 
a wonderful pre-credit sequence where Bond saves civilization as we know it, even raising a wry grin from M, and a stunning motorbike chase in which Lynn and Bond are handcuffed together. One gets the idea that this is Bond's idea of a good date night. Tomorrow Never Dies also has one of the best cast in a Brosnan Bond movie. Terry Hatcher is well served as a sacrificial Bond girl, sacrificed by M rather than Bond. Vincent Schiavelli has a wonderful cameo, and many other familiar faces show up, from the aforementioned Price to Downton Abbey writer Julian Fellows, hangdog-faced Jeffrey Palmer, and Joe Don Baker reprising his role as Wade, who seemed to be Piers Brosnan's version of Felix Leiter. Whilst the film runs out of steam in its final act, a problem that plagues all of Brosnan's movies, Tomorrow Never Dies has weathered the years admirably, and whilst it doesn't really offer anything new, it does what it does with class. Number 17, 1969's On Her Majesty's Secret Service. This never happened to the other fellow. Ignored for years after its initial release, and perceived as a flop by many, Honor Majesty's Secret Service has undergone a resurgence of popularity over the past two decades, with many now declaring it one of, if not the, best Bond movie of all. I can't quite go that far, as you can see by its placement, because for me it's a Bond film that works despite Bond, not because of him. Whilst George Lazenby, slipping into Connery's shoulder holster for his one and only time, looks the part, he's not quite convincing as Bond the super spy killer. Yes, he's a unit of a man. Yes, he's more than capable in a fight. And yes, he's surrounded by the requisite beautiful women. But there's something missing, some X factor that makes Bond Bond. I also find the film to be terribly flabby around the midsection, not helped by Lazenby having his voice dubbed for a third of the film. Still, like many other Bond movies, Honor Majesty's Secret Service has an awful lot worthwhile going for it. John Barry's score is one of the best, the action is all ably mounted, and, as if to counter Lazenby's perceived inexperience, the cast are also a class act. Diana Rigg brings charm to the role of Tracy, and Telly Savalas is probably the best of the Blofelds in a film whose script actually follows the book quite closely. Honor Majesty's Secret Service was not a flop. It was actually the second highest grossing film of the year, and Lazenby was paid his advance for the second film, but returned it. People often talk about how doing this film would have been a much better exit for Connery, and that may be so, but it would also have been an excellent debut for Moore. Moore often lamented that, whilst Bond was fun, it didn't really involve a lot of acting, and that's where Honor Majesty's Secret Service is let down. Lazenby wasn't seasoned enough at this time to pull off the most emotional and real Bond yet, so Roger could have excelled here. Still, Honor Majesty's Secret Service is a lot better than its reputation throughout the 70s and 80s would suggest, and very different to the other films. And it's good to try something different every now and again. And Honor Majesty's Secret Service would be rewarded years later, as its tone is a heavy influence on the Daniel Craig era. Number 16, 1962's Dr. No. Medium dry martini, lemon peel, shaken, not stirred. Vodka? Of course. The first big screen adventure for Ian Fleming's super spy creaks a bit by today's standards. But the template is there from the beginning, and Sean Connery owns the character from the moment he steps on screen. Bond's brutality, his erudite nature, his intelligence, his style, his love of women, food and booze is all on display from the get-go. 
Doctor No himself is almost a letdown when we finally get there. But the journey is half the fun in this adventure, saddled as it is with terrible rear projection and an almost over-reliance on the James Bond theme. Still, all the Bondian elements are all present and correct. OTT bad guy with delusions of grandeur? Check. Stunning location photography? Check. Ursula Andress as a stunningly beautiful Bond girl? Check. An unflappable Bond totally in control? Check. The supporting cast? Lois Maxwell as Miss Moneypenny, Bernard Lee as M, Q, sadly not Desmond Llewellyn, and even Felix Leiter, albeit in the form here of Jack Lord, are all present and correct, as is a villain's lure and Bond's sardonic sense of humour. The first time may not be the best time, but it's a memorable yarn nevertheless. Number 15, 1979's Moonraker. Mr Bond... You defy all my attempts to plan an amusing death for you. You're not a sportsman, Mr. Bond. Why did you break off the encounter with my pet python? I discovered he had a crush on Moonraker is often considered the peak of Bondian excess. Rushed into production instead of For Your Eyes Only, following the success of Star Wars, Moonraker sees Bond voyage into space to prevent madman Hugo Drax, Michael Lonsdale, and his Hitler-esque dreams of a super race. Moonraker can sometimes become a tad too silly, with double-take pigeons and jaws, Richard Keel, trying to fly by flapping his arms. But for pure entertainment, you can't go wrong with Moonraker. For one, the dialogue is genuinely witty, from Bond's casual takedown of a sniper to Drax's, look after Mr Bond, see some harm comes to him, and Q's, I think he's attempting re-entry, sir. Moonraker's often a very funny film. The action is also well-mounted with some excellent special effects work from Derek Meddings, and, in his fourth time in the role, a Roger Moore who's fully in command. In fact, Drax's ultra-dry delivery may make him the funniest Bond villain of all. Every line is a gem, and the stunt work, especially in the nail-biting pre-credit sequence, at an all-time high. Sorry, wrong Bond film. Moonraker is often considered the nadir of the Bond franchise, an illogicality in a series that also features Die Another Day. But you know what? Moonraker is fun. Yes, fun. Remember fun? It's what films used to be. We now live in a world where red-caped super-do-gooders are only allowed to star in ponderous, colour-desaturated misery fests. Give me Moonraker any day of the week. Double-take pigeons and all. Number 14, 1995's Golden Eye. You don't like me, Bond. You don't like my methods. You think I'm an accountant. A bean counter more interested in my numbers than your instincts. The thought had occurred to me. Good. Because I think you're a sexist, misogynist dinosaur. A relic of the Cold War. Whose boyish charms, though wasted on me, obviously appeal to that young woman I sent out to evaluate you. If there's one thing the producers want you to think coming out of GoldenEye, it's that everything is going to be fine. Legal issues meant there hadn't been a Bond film in six years when GoldenEye came out, so Bond's caretakers were keen to let you know all is as it was. Except it wasn't. In the six years since Licence to Kill, there had been think pieces galore about how Bond was past it, how we didn't need this sexist, misogynistic dinosaur in the touchy-feely 90s. So how to address this problem? Well, you give the world's most sexist man a female boss. 
and then have the female boss, still M, but now played by Dame Judi Dench, point out to Bond that he is a sexist, misogynistic dinosaur. Brilliant. In most every other respect, GoldenEye is business as usual. New Bond, Pierce Brosnan, was largely the people's choice. There's a great pre-credit sequence, a funky theme, and the supporting characters are present and correct, with Tanner, Moneypenny and Q all here to verbally spar with 007. Only Moneypenny has really been given a 90s makeover, though, with the aptly named Samantha Bond playing her as more efficient, capable, and someone who doesn't just hang around waiting for James Bond to call her. Miss Bond is more than capable of giving James Bond as good as he gets in the smutty innuendo department, setting the stage for Naomi Harris. Famke Janssen is particularly fun as evil Bond girl Xenia Onatop, a woman who comes as she kills. If Goldeneye falters, it's because Eric Sierra's score is bland and uninvolving and was reportedly touched up by David Arnold before release, and that it's pretty by the numbers in many ways. However, that was what was needed in 1995. A statement of intent. You know the name. You know the number. Bond was back. Number 13, 1981's For Your Eyes Only. Forgive me, Father, for I have sinned. That's putting it mildly, 007. Following Moonraker, Sir Roger Moore threatened to call it a day. He'd do it after For Your Eyes Only as well. And after Octopus, before finally, after a view to a kill, the Bond producers finally accepted his resignation. However, for a while it did look like there wouldn't be any more, and he was done and out after four. Which is why For Your Eyes Only is as good as it is. It was written for a new Bond. This shows in the pre-credit sequence, which calls back to Honor Majesty's Secret Service with a visit to Tracy's grave, and follows this up by dumping Blofeld down a smokestack. Out with the old, in with the new. The bond of your eyes only is harder than more was used to, and in fact, more balked at a few of the scenes. There are also moments where he's stripped of his gadgets and forced to rely on his wits and brains to solve problems. Ironically, this is why For Your Eyes Only is Moore's second best Bond, showing that he could have played the more brutal Bond had he so desired. But it also shows us another missed opportunity. Imagine if, in the world where Roger Moore had taken over for Honor Majesty's Secret Service, he had called it a day in 1979, and the new decade had given us Timothy Dalton three films earlier. Would time have been kinder to both Sir Roger and Dalton? Who can say? I mean, sure, For Your Eyes Only isn't too serious. A talking parrot provides a vital clue, and this, more than anything, unhinges For Your Eyes Only. It's dark and fatalistic in places, but campy in others, Moore's presence always reassuring the viewer that it's all going to be okay. It's a romp, after all. Which is a shame, as Melina Havelock, beauteous French actor Carol Bouquet, has a revenge quest that is believable and earned. The underwater sequences with the MacGuffin du jour, the ATAC, are genuinely suspenseful. And Bond's anger at the needless death of the Countess are wonderfully played. Also wonderful Sir Roger's rebuffs of sex-pot teen ice skater Bibi Dahl, who frequently throws herself at 53-year-old Bond. His dismissal line of her is hysterical and perfectly delivered. Unlike some other actors in the role, 
Sir Roger could fire off a casual one-liner with aplomb. There's no getting around it, though. Whilst he doesn't look 53, being three decades older than the love interest is starting to make Bond look a little predatory, and the difference between Sir Roger and the stuntman was never more pronounced. No one could have thought he still had two movies left in him. Number 12, 1989's Licence to Kill. This private vendetta of yours could easily compromise Her Majesty's government. You have an assignment, and I expect you to carry it out objectively and professionally. Then you have my resignation, sir. We're not a country club, 007. In 1989, the action movie landscape had changed. The big heroes were now weapons-happy, monosyllabic hard men who let their guns do the talking. And whilst your John Rambos, your John Matrixes, or your Chuck Norrises can be fun, they lack a certain panache. No style at all. In this realm, though, Bond seemed to struggle. Timothy Dalton's second and final turn as Bond has actually aged much better than one would think. At the time, it was called a reaction to the more revenge-driven action flicks of the period, a Miami Vice with martinis. Thirty years later, though, it's a refreshing change. Whilst Bond going rogue is now commonplace, at the time, this was novel. And also novel was a story with an emotional edge to it. Taking its cues from the live-and-let-die book, Bond's CIA buddy Felix Leiter is fed to the fishes and emerges legless after an encounter with ruthless drug kingpin Sanchez, played by TV renter bad guy Robert Davy. What follows is a Bond stripped of his license to kill and not working for Her Majesty anymore, being more brutal and dangerous than ever. His bad side is a dangerous place to be, ran the tagline, and this was a Bond who took no prisoners, gave no quarter and took no guff. Dalton excels as a Bond who is beaten but unbowed, down but never out. With a larger-than-normal role for Q, some real down-and-dirty fight scenes, and, for the first time in a long time, a real feeling of danger, License to Kill is a hidden gem in the Bond back catalogue. Number 11. Quantum of Solace, from 2008. Bond, I need you back. I never left. Now, I know what you're thinking. And you're right. Quantum? Here? Well, yes, lovely listener, this is no doubt a bizarre choice. And an argument can be made that Honor Majesty's Secret Service, for your eyes only, License to Kill should all be higher. But what can I say? I like Quantum. It's a rough, lean, brutal film with a Bond who really does not care if he lives or dies. Following on directly from Casino Royale, this one sees Bond interrupt Dominic Green's plans to create a monopoly on water rights. Arguments can be made that it lurches from one scene to another, that the camera work is too shaky, that maybe the script, a victim of the writer's strike, could have done with another pass, and that the villain is really weak. And yeah, all of these are right. But I enjoy watching Quantum. I enjoy this hard-nosed, take-no-crap bond. I love the scene where, having been checked into a one-star hotel, as per his cover as a teacher, Bond instantly marches over to a five-star luxury joint and makes up that, yes, he's a teacher on sabbatical, but what, he just won the lottery. 
Bond doesn't stay in one star dives. The Aston Martin car chase at the beginning is brilliant. The climax, Bond preventing a Canadian agent played by Castle Stanakatic from being duped, well played. And the final shot, haunting and touching. Quantum is also lean in its running time, which may be part of the reason I like it. It rattles along, never overstaying its welcome. Quantum is a diverting and entertaining Bond film, one I feel underrated in the Craig era. Even the theme isn't as bad as you remember it. Number 10, 1967's You Only Live Twice. My friend, now you take your first civilised bath. Really? Well, I like the plumbing. Place yourself entirely in their hands, my dear one son. Rule number one is never do anything for yourself when someone else can do it for you. And number two? Rule number two, in Japan, men always come first, women come second. I may just retire to here. For the first time, a Bond film feels truly formulaic. The first three movies had the advantage of setting the tone, the fourth, solidifying it. But they all offered something different. You Only Live Twice is properly by the numbers, and pretty much sets the series template for the 70s and 80s. It's all here. The exotic locales, the expendable girls, the quips, the extravagant villain's lure, the gadgets, Blofeld and the cat. On Bond Bingo, it's this film that would give you a full house. Fortunately, it's 60s Bond, so it's still sumptuous and wonderfully entertaining. The photography is crisp and, following on from Thunderball, properly cinematic. The score, magnificent. The theme, memorable. The quips, funny. The gadgets are especially cool, thanks to the introduction of Little Nelly and the thrilling Ariel set piece that follows. And Donald Pleasance's Blofeld gets to deliver the single best goodbye, Mr. Bond, in the series. Sadly, there are negatives. Having Bond turn Japanese is slightly less palatable nowadays than it was in 1967. And this film alone gave Mike Myers enough material to generate three films worth of spoof. Pleasance's Blofeld is slightly less threatening when all you can see is Dr. Evil. The final fight with the muscular blonde henchman also feels somewhat familiar. In fact, Bond is pretty useless to the conclusion generally, the heavy lifting being provided by the Marines. This makes a bit of sense, given Bond is here essentially on loan from MI6 to the CIA, in a plot that sees Bond try to figure out who is capturing US space shuttles. The US thinks it's Russia, the UK, Japan. Both are wrong. It all culminates in a spectacular assault on Blofeld's volcano hideout that shows off Ken Adams' wonderfully designed sets to their best advantage. It's still fun, and the excitement level is still high, but it was the first time Bond offered up the equivalent of a Big Mac. You are very nice, you only live twice, but I don't want a Big Mac for every meal. Number 9, 2015's Spectre. Are you ready to get back to work? With pleasure, M. With pleasure. If a Bond actor is lucky enough to make it beyond three instalments, it's always the fourth film in their series that trips them up. Thunderball, Moonraker and now Spectre all suffer from the same problem. 
namely an absolutely fantastic third entry, Goldfinger, The Spy Who Loved Me, and Skyfall, respectively. And then the problem of how do we top that? I mean, this doesn't hold totally true with Brosnan, whose fourth entry does fit the pattern, but whose third could hardly be described as fantastic. Still, Craig, like Connery and more before him, stumbles, and for most of the same reasons. The film is overstuffed. Like Thunderball and Moonraker, Spectre has a spectacular first half, full of promise, danger and intrigue, as well as the requisite action and humour. And, like Thunderball and Moonraker, Spectre comes off the wheels a bit in the last half. Which makes it very difficult to rank in these kinds of things, because overall, again, like Thunderball and Moonraker, Spectre is wonderfully entertaining. The Day of the Dead opener is stunning, showing a mature and confident Bond, now played by a mature and confident Daniel Craig. It can't be said Craig didn't suffer for his art. He broke his ankle filming this opening sequence and played the rest of the film on a broken ankle, only taped up so he could get away with it. The problem here is in the relationships, though. After finally sorting out all the legal problems around Blofeld, the producers bring him back in the form of Christoph Waltz, but he's rather unmemorable and flat. He makes you long for the days of Donald Pleasance, let alone Telly Savalas. Secondly, Bond falls for a new woman, here Madeline Swan, played by Leia Sadeau. Secondly, Bond falls for a new woman here, Madeline Swan, played by Leia Sadeau. But also has a dalliance with Monica Bellucci as a disposable Bond girl, Lucia Schiara. But he actually has more chemistry with Bellucci. I kind of wish the actors had swapped roles. Spectre also starts the thankless task of tying together all of the disparate threads of Craig's run, attempting to turn it into one long, continuous narrative. This is ill-advised. You can feel the plot creaking as the writers try to make events not designed to be part of a whole stick together. The cast make it work. Craig, as mentioned, is on top form. His loyal cohorts, Q, Ben Wishaw, Moneypenny, Naomi Harris, Tanner, Rory Kinnear, and M, Rafe Fines, all present and correct, and Dave Bautista is one of the most fearsome adversaries in a Bond film since Red Grant. The car chase through Rome between the Aston Martin DB10 and the Jaguar CX75 is one for the books. The film looks spectacular, I won't do that again, promise. And if the last half hour falls into predictability, well, that's only because the first hour was so damn good. The return of the gun barrel opening was also much appreciated. Terrible theme, though. Number 8, 1971's Diamonds are forever. Is he dead? I sincerely hope so. Who is he? No idea. This chap's been following me all day today. My God. You just killed James Bond. Bond entered the 70s slightly tarnished. Connery had left, vowing never again after You Only Live Twice, and the producers had brought in Aussie tough guy George Lazenby to replace him. Lazenby quit after one film, after some duff advice from his friends and agents, and the producers were snookered, offering Connery the then unprecedented sum of $1.25 million to return. Connery, being Scottish, couldn't refuse, although he did donate the salary to the Scottish International Education Trust. But his return 
is an oddity. Diamonds Are Forever is a Roger Moore Bond film, inadvertently made with Sean Connery. It doesn't help that Connery has none of Moore's commitment. He looks bored, out of shape and considerably older in this film. Oddly though, this lighter tone works, mostly, with Connery sending himself up wonderfully in places. The hitmen, Mr. Wint and Mr. Kidd, are delightfully memorable. And Jill St. John's a pretty good Bond girl, playing diamond smuggler Tiffany Case. Diamonds Are Forever also has one of the best Bond girl cameos. The delightful Lana Wood, who has a wonderfully funny scene as Plenty O'Toole, named after your father perhaps. With a great score and a classic theme, Diamonds Are Forever may not be the best film, but unlike men, Diamonds Are Forever lingers. Number 7, 2021's No Time to Die. Always makes me feel a little melancholy. A grand old warship being ignominiously hauled away for scrap. The inevitability of time, don't you think? What do you see? A bloody big ship. Excuse me. 007. I'm your new quartermaster. You must be joking. Why? Because I'm not wearing a lab coat? Because you still have spots. My complexion is hardly relevant. Well, your competence is. Age is no guarantee of efficiency. And youth is no guarantee of innovation. Well, has it I can do more damage on my laptop sitting in my pyjamas before my first cup of Earl Grey than you can do in a year in the field? Oh, so why do you need me? Every now and then a trigger has to be pulled. Or not pulled. It's hard to know which in your pyjamas. Q. 007. There's every possibility that No Time to Die, Daniel Craig's final Bond movie and the last James Bond story, could change its position. As, having viewed the film three times now, I'm still not sure how I feel about it. It could go up or down. In most regards, No Time to Die is the same level of quality as most of Craig's run, by which I mean, for at least 50% of its running time, it's up there with the best of them. The pre-credit sequence, the longest in Bond history, is stunning, and easily the Aston Martin DB5's finest hour. After that, though, the film runs hot and cold, often at the same time. The villain, Safin, played by Rami Malek, would be better as a henchman rather than the main bad guy. And the character that should be the main bad guy, Blofeld, a returning Christoph Waltz, is relegated to a glorified cameo. Also returning from Spectre, the main love interest, Madeleine Swann, again played by Leia Sado, works better this time round. But she still seems a bit wet for Bond. Bond's retirement at the end of Spectre means there's a new 007, Lashana Lynch, who's as cocky and swaggering as Bond. But there's no reason for her to surrender the double O to him at the big climax, as it undermines her character. Q and Moneypenny are, as usual, excellent, and M, Ray Fiennes, is given a bigger role, but it's Anna de Armas as rookie CIA agent Paloma who steals her scant but memorable ten minutes of screen time. Jeffrey Wright also returns, making Bond history in the process, being the only actor to portray Felix Leiter three times, and this contributes a lot to the, the gang's all here feel. 
The story is relatively simple for a Bond film. MI6 has developed a bioweapon called Heracles, and it's fallen into the wrong hands. Bond must retrieve it. No Time to Die is perhaps surprisingly a character piece, with Bond examining his life. Who is he when he's not an agent? What is he? He finds answers in the strangest places. The ending is now out in the public domain, and I still think it was a mistake. A result of giving your lead actor too much control, Craig being the only Bond actor to receive a producer credit. That said, it is affecting, even though it still feels to me like Bond surrenders to his fate. Something I don't believe Bond would ever do. But it's a credit to the overall strength of the film that I can look beyond this and still enjoy it. And I can enjoy it, mostly because No Time to Die is writing two cinematic wrongs within the Bond franchise. No Time to Die reframes the novel versions of Honor Majesty's Secret Service and You Only Live Twice, and does a better job of adapting the latter than the film of the same name. The NUI Bond experiences due to the loss of Madeline, the retirement to a quiet village to fish and drink all day, and the confrontation in the Garden of the Dead are all from the book, as is his confrontation with Blofeld. Craig's Bond is a little more defiant in retirement than the novel version, but this makes it easier to see in retrospect that Craig's era has been the best representation of Fleming on screen since the very early days. You Only Live Twice by Ian Fleming could easily be the last James Bond story, but Fleming gave himself an out. No Time to Die does no such thing, for which it should be commended. There's no winking at the audience, no possible last-ditch escape, no gadgets to save him, no friend to arrive from nowhere to pull his fat out of the fire. Unless the next film follows You Only Live Twice further. Fleming's version of the next novel, The Man with the Golden Gun, saw an amnesiac Bond sent to kill M. Now that would be interesting. Number six, 1963's From Russia, with love. You're one of the most beautiful girls I've ever seen. Thank you. But I think my mouth is too big. No, it's the right size. For me, that is. In many ways, From Russia With Love is the best of the James Bond films. It's a plausible Cold War thriller, replete with Russian bad guys, femme fatales, innocent parties and betrayal. It's also the first appearance of Spectre, the first time Bond would be required to recover a stolen world-altering device, the Lecter, and the first to feature two, count them two, threats to Bond that may be his equal, Robert Shaw as Red Grant and Lottie Alenia as Rosa Klebb. The leading lady is also one of the best and most beautiful, Daniela Bianchi as Tanya Romanov, the poor girl Bond has to seduce to complete his mission. And what is that mission? Well, this time Bond is targeted by Spectre following the death of Dr. No, and he's lured in by the MacGuffin du jour of the Lecter. You can't not say that like Sean Connery after seeing the film. From Russia with Love still has all the Bondian elements, a poison shoe and a well-stocked briefcase, for example, but it's by far the most realistic Bond film of the era, eschewing bombast for practicality. Bond is all about the mission, and not so much about banging ladies who spurn his advances. The lack of ridiculous gadgets adds to the danger. Bond is really on his own here, relying on wits and skill. It's arguable that Red Grant actually gets the better of him, and Bond only survives because he tricks Grant into opening the exploding briefcase. 
Connery is at his best here, sparring verbally and physically with Shaw to a hugely entertaining degree, and from Russia with Love's close quarters train fight is one of the best of the series. It's also got one of the best pre-credit sequences, even if technically Bond isn't even in it. The true proof of the film's legacy is that the audition pieces for any potential Bond or Bond leading lady are from this film. Also of note, for those who showed concern that a woman wrote some of No Time to Die, Joanna Harwood wrote the screenplay to this, Dr No and contributed to Goldfinger. I fly to you, Miss Harwood, from Russia, with love. Number 5, 1977's The Spy Who Loved Me. Look what Q's brought for us. Isn't it nice? Right. Now, pay attention, 007. I want you to take great care of this equipment. There are one or two rather special accessories. Q, have I ever let you down? Frequently. (laughs) 70s Bond was a different beast. With Sir Roger Moore here for the third time, the series had become more parodic and tongue-in-cheek. The hypothesis of this approach is 1977's The Spy Who Loved Me, a magnificent romp of a movie that never fails to raise a smile. Unlike some of Brosnan's groan-worthy dad gags, Moore's quips are genuinely funny. All those feathers and he still can't fly lives in my head rent-free, and he's totally in control throughout. He's opposed by Jaws, Richard Keel, and abetted by Russian agent Anya Amasova, played by the gorgeous Barbara Bach. And it all culminates in a spectacular raid on the underwater facility of the film's villain, Stromberg, a stunning set built on the Bond stage at Pinewood. Add to this a spectacular car chase with an underwater car, the oh-so-70s but oh-so-cool Lotus Esprit, Carly Simon's earworm of a theme and audacious set pieces, The Spy Who Loved Me is an unalloyed delight. Confident, cool, unflappable, this was a Bond only more could have played, and nobody could have done it better. Number 4, 2012's Skyfall. I'd like to start with some simple word associations. Just tell me the first word that pops into your head. For example, I might say day, and you might say wasted. All right. Gun. Short. Agent. Provocateur. Woman. Provocatrix. Heart. Target. Bird. Sky. M. Pitch. Sunlight. Swim. Moonlight. Dance. Murder. Employment. Country. England. Skyfall. Skyfall. Done. This is going well. For Bond's 50th big screen birthday, Skyfall returns everything that had been stripped away in the previous two films, positioning Bond for the future in fine style. Skyfall delves into Bond's background more than ever before, 
re-establishes Miss Moneypenny, a beautiful Naomi Harris, as a field agent, and gives us the best cue in years, Ben Wishaw, reimagining him as a nerdy young hipster geek for whom Bond has little time, but much respect. Sure, the plot doesn't hold much water if you examine it, with everything having to be planned out to the second to fully work, but Javier Bardem is such a wonderful villain, I don't care. Unusually for a Bond film, Skyfall mostly stays in the UK, but it's actually all the better for it, showcasing the country to great effect and focusing more on the relationships between the characters, giving Judi Dench's M a great deal to do and allowing Bond a more personal connection to the story. He's still Bond, though, so obviously his biggest annoyance comes when his DB5 is destroyed. I'm with him, though. It's a beautiful car. Everything is on point from the pre-credit sequence and Bond's entrance, one of the best for a Bond actor, to the theme which is very appropriate to the film, to the magnificent cinematography. Skyfall sets Bond up for another 50 years and beyond. Number 3. 1964's Goldfinger. Do you expect me to talk? No, Mr. Bond, I expect you to die. If there's a quintessential Bond film... It's Goldfinger. The best Bond, Conroy, at the peak of his powers. The best Bond girl, Honor Blackman's pussy galore, saddled with the best Bond girl name. It's also the silliest, but silly is fine. In fact, she's not a Bond girl, but a Bond woman, showing the franchise was aware of its shortcomings in that department long before the tedious think pieces and ill-judged op-eds. The best Bond villain, Gertfrobe's Auric Goldfinger, is the gold standard by which all others will be judged. The best Bond henchman, the mute, stout odd job played by Harold Sakata, another character the producers will be forever chasing. The best Bond vehicle, the DB5, here not just an iconic nod to the fans, but a key part of the story. Its best gadget, the then futuristic GPS system. The DB5 wouldn't be this cool again until No Time to Die. The best theme song, well, it's up there. Watching it now, Goldfinger is a greatest hits package before the other albums came out. Every scene is iconic, oft imitated, rarely bettered. So why is it not number one? Well, there's a little bit too much sped up footage for my liking. Looks a bit cheesy today. It's also not quite the height of 60s Bondian excess. That's still to come. And whilst I'm fine with Bond the sexist pig, I'm not quite as comfortable with Bond the snob. Like listening to the Beatles without earmuffs. Indeed. Still, there's loads to adore about Goldfinger. It's great score, it's lush scenery, it's iconic lines. No, Mr. Bond, I expect you to die. It's tight running time. Yes, even the naff rear projection. 58 years later, it's still magnificent entertainment. The series would be chasing this film for the next 20 years. Goldfinger may love only gold, but we love Goldfinger. Number 2, 1965's Thunderball. One of my friend's sisters went out. She's just dead. The first Bond film to be an event, Thunderball was released at the height of Bond mania in 1965 and was the highest grossing Bond film of the decade. For a long time, I succumbed to the theory that Thunderball was okay for a bit and then got bogged down by all the underwater footage. Now, that's why I love it. 
I came to love it after seeing the film in widescreen, after years of just seeing it in pan and scan on ITV's Christmas screenings. And then again, watching it on Blu-ray, where the sumptuous location photography and the gorgeous cinematography can be savoured to its fullest. This is the first Bond film to be truly cinematic. The first to be filmed in 235 to 1 rather than 185 to 1. And the first to be marketed as must-see. This is 60s Bondian excess at its absolute finest. The story's pretty good. Bond must head to the Bahamas to recover two nukes stolen by Spectre operative Largo, played by Alfredo Celli. There's the usual action, girls and guns along the way, but this registers now as being pure 60s immersive entertainment. Bond has never been more brutal, harpooning men in the face, stabbing them through their scuba mask and strangling them with a poker. Connery is in command throughout. If there are complaints, it's that Bond's a tad too rapey in the early sequences, and his relationship with Largo isn't as entertaining as his banter with Goldfinger. But overall, this film strikes like Thunderball. Number one, 2006's Casino Royale. So as charming as you are, Mr. Bond, I will be keeping my eye on our government's money and off your perfectly formed hearts. You noticed. Even accountants have imagination. How was your lamb? Skewered. One sympathizes. Good evening, Mr. Bond. Good evening, Miss Lind. When Daniel Craig was announced as the next James Bond in 2004, there were, in some quarters, hoots of derision. Bond not blonde around the ever-so-calm and collected responses. Not my Bond website sprouted up, and it was, in many ways, the first time a fan base was decrying a decision sight unseen. I knew Craig from our friends in the North and Enduring Love, neither of which were really Bond-esque roles, but perhaps casting against type was wise. After all, on paper, Brosnan had all the qualities to be the best Bond yet, but ultimately I found him lacking. We needn't have worried. Casino Royale is as muscular a debut as any in the Bond canon. Whilst the series had flirted with stealth updates before, this was the first time the producers had given the show a full Ground Zero reset. Whilst the past would inform the future, the series would not be defined by it. Casino Royale went back to the start, the first as yet unadapted, by the Bond franchise keyholders anyway, Fleming novel. And, for the first time, the story of how Bond begins. This itself was a departure from the book where Bond is nearing the end of his career, but looking at where we'd come from was seen as appealing in the early 2000s. For the first time, we see how Bond gets his double-O license to kill, where his taste in impeccably tailored suits come from, and how he came to be. Many have pointed out that this seems to be a Bond influenced by Jason Bourne, but it seems to me the bigger influence... Batman Begins. This is Bond's first mission, and almost his last, as this Bond isn't the unflappable, confident, suave, smooth operator of old, rather a rough-around-the-edges blunt instrument, better suited to running through walls than stalking his prey like a panther. Craig gives Bond a humanity not seen... well, ever. His craggy face and seen-it-all demeanour, a sharp contrast to Connery's swagger and more sophistication. The tight script follows the novel very well, and Craig is ably backed up by Judy Dench as M, Eva Green as Vesper Lind, and Geoffrey Wright as Felix Leiter. 
There's no Q branch, no gadgets, very few one-liners. But those who say Craig isn't funny just aren't appreciating his dry delivery and sardonic sarcasm. Upon being told the second kill, the one that earns the agent his double-O status, is easier than the first, Craig coldly and hysterically replies, yes, considerably, just after putting a bullet between his target's eyes. It's the first time Bond has been dark and funny. The black-and-white teaser is just the start of a well-paced, crackingly edited film, one that has just got better with age. Chris Cornell's masculine theme and the excellent opening titles lead into one iconic scene after another, with Bond facing down the chilling Chifra, played with a permanent sneer by Mads Mikkelsen, leading to tragedy and death, and a Bond put firmly on his path. By the time the Bond theme finally makes an appearance just before the end credits, there is no doubt. Daniel Craig is Bond. James Bond. So there you have it, all the official movies ranked. As stated, your list will be different, and I must confess, even now I'm not sure that some of these are where I would put them tomorrow. Hell, I rearranged a few as I sat down to record, having watched most of them again over the last few months. See, that's the thing with Bonds. They age like a fine wine. Some improving, some falling away, some best savoured, some chugged. Some that feel dated today will, perhaps, in ten years, come around again. Tomorrow Never Dies plays better now than it did when it came out, whilst Live and Let Die feels more of a relic than Thunderball, which still looks fresh and cinematic. There may be no time to die, but only time will tell how Craig's era holds up. For now, it's my favourite run. There's more to Bond in these films than ever before. Layers and subtleties that other actors in the role could only dream of playing. He's still halfway from coal, halfway to diamond, and still a bit of a cad. But we understand him better. The producers may have been accused of aping the Jason Bourne series when Craig began, but they've aged better and been better films than that series. Bond once again, leaving his rivals coughing in the dust of his DB5's exhaust. One thing that did surprise me, in 60 years and 25 films, there isn't really a turd in the punch bowl. There's no Batman and Robin, no Superman 4, no Amazing Spider-Man 2 in this franchise. Most entries are, at the very least, fun and entertaining to watch. It's a pretty remarkable batting average. Where the franchise goes now is anyone's guess. Maybe the Broccolis will sell up and move on. Barbara Broccoli is in her late 60s, and her stepbrother, Michael G. Wilson, is in his 70s. With the gap between films now being at least four years, how long will they want to continue? In between 1965 and 1989, and 1995 and 1999, there was a Bond film every two years. Whilst no one wants them to go back to that rate of production, we all saw the Star Wars sequels turned out, we also don't want near five to six year regular gaps between films. My suggestion, for what it's worth, Denis Villeneuve, Edgar Wright and Christopher Nolan have all expressed an interest in doing a Bond film. Let them. Let them do whatever they want. Cast whoever they want. Release them a year apart. Daniel Craig had been a departure from what went before. I'd see them push that further with some radically different takes. Bond can survive. Bond can survive anything. No Time to Die ended with the familiar title card, James Bond Will Return. How remains to be seen. But as Blofeld once said, 
You only live twice. Double length, in many ways. Yeah, almost double length. 200th episode of the Palace of Glittering Delights. It would be nothing without your patronage and support. We'll have a look at the email section. Our first email tonight is from Matt Prather, and it's simply entitled Monkeys. I presume he means the monkeys and not monkeys that go, ooh, and live in trees because it's spelt slightly different than that, but that's probably autocorrect. Hey, Andrew. Hello, Matt. So as much of a mark as I am over Spider-Man, I was also more about your monkeys retrospective. Everybody loved the monkeys. Having just lost a member of the band, it does stand to reason it would resonate more. Possibly Peter, always entertaining as he is, doesn't seem as fun compared to the upbeat monkey shenanigans. Your research and time are always appreciated, but the monkeys are just fun. Yeah, they were. I watched another episode recently. I watched... um. I think it was the final episode of the first season, The Monkeys on Tour, which was a decidedly offbeat, off-concept episode. Very much enjoyed it, actually. Very good. Inspired by your recent coverage of Hulk, I've gone back and started reading that run. I like the TV series inspired elements of the stories and find the best of the art inspiring. And even the lesser art is pretty damn good. Thanks for covering it. I am enjoying the experience. That's the Bruce Jones run, am I correct? Good, good. I'm glad you're enjoying it. I think it seems not talked about much nowadays, but I genuinely really enjoyed reading that. Uh, I managed to pick up the Paul Jenkins Hulk omnibus, Dogs of War, for reasonable money in some sales. So I'll read that next, I think. I may take it away with me. Oh yeah, I'm going on holiday, so I may take it away from me. On a Hulk-related note, Jim Rugg is doing a Hulk grand design two-issue run early this year. The Grand Design series of books seems to cover the history of a character, or characters, focused through the vision of a single creator. I enjoy Jim's work in general, and I'm anticipating his look at the Jade Giant. I know the FF and X-Men have had this treatment in the past, but this will be the first one I will pick up. Just wondering if you had any feelings about this kind of treatment. Thanks for everything, Matt Prather. Well, thank you for emailing in, Matt, and being in the 200th episode. Well done. Um, I have not read any of the Grand Design comics that you mentioned, but I too saw that there was a Hulk one and was interested in it because obviously the Fantastic Four I'm moderately interested in, but I don't really care about the X-Men. But the Hulk, I'm, I'm interested to see how he, he does that and leafs all that, strings all that together as if it was one consistent narrative. I think it's, uh, it's a good idea. Um, sometimes it can be a bit laboured, like uh, I found Avengers Forever a bit more hard work than perhaps I should have done. But uh, I'm willing to give Hulk Grand Design a chance. I may pick it up, actually, now that you've mentioned it. Uh, Rob McCarthy's emailed in Spider-Man 151 through 156. No harmonica rant, I promise. Hey, Andy. Hello, Rob. Number one, while it is out of character for Mary Jane to back down from a fight with Peter, having her be out of character for Peter says, oh my God, she loves him. 
Besides, he's not really nice. It makes no sense that a guy just lost his girlfriend is dating. Well, see, the thing with that is, obviously what we've got to look at is, at that point, the comics were still in real time. Uh, so a number of years have passed since Gwen died, even though the character doesn't seem to be much older than 21, and he's still in college. But also, the thing of it is, my reading of it was always that Gwen's death was what brought Peter and Murray Jane together. They needed to be with somebody who understood what the other had gone through. You know, if you go back and listen to all the episodes I did about the Lee Ramita run, Murray Jane was more of a rival for Gwen than a friend. But it was clear that she also had a thing for Peter. And there was an element of jealousy there from Murray Jane. And I get the distinct impression Murray Jane wasn't used to being jealous of other girls. She was used to all heads in the room turning and looking at her. And then along comes Gwen, who wasn't really trying to get all the heads in the room looking at her, but achieved it anyway. And losing Gwen at such a young age impacted on Murray Jane in a completely different way that it impacted on Peter. Murray Jane saw in Gwen's death, I think, mortality. And that's quite a young age to be faced down with mortality. You, you're invincible when you're a teenager. You think you're going to go on forever. And obviously Peter had lost his girlfriend, which Peter had lived with death quite a lot. But that will have been a shock to the system. And that's what brought them both together, I think. And suddenly converting Murray Jane into a lovey-dovey girlfriend is a disservice to her character. I really think that. It doesn't. She doesn't have to be really nice all the time, because she wasn't to Gwen. Again, go back and listen to those episodes or read the comics. Murray Jane was quite catty to Gwen Stacy, more than once. So... It's, there are a lot of things going on there emotionally. And I don't know that I think Murray Jane would have backed down as easy, even with what you say. But more than anything, I think Peter overreacted as well. But it, you do, don't you? You react like that when you're in a relationship. Number two, the wedding would have been a good time for MJ to figure out the secret. See, I don't mind her figuring it out. For me, though, it makes a lot more sense for her to figure it out whilst they're dating in the context of after the death of Gwen and Norman, that's when she figures it out. And in my head canon, it was always, oh, it was always because it was spoiled relatively as soon as DeFalco wrote that story. Jerry Conway followed it up not that long later, saying that she knew from the beginning. But to me, it makes much more sense for her to figure out why they were dating. And that's why she turns down his proposal, that she's not interested in being married to Spider-Man. Number three, oh man, Peter being Ned Leeds' best man is depressing. Poor Ned. He was made a bad guy just to die a really confusing death. Yeah, Ned Ned was handled very, very badly post-Roger Stern. Roger Stern had him be a really good character. Like a younger version of Ben Urich. Number four, even if Spider-Man 1975 didn't need new foes as badly as, say, Superman, it's always good to make new bad guys. Well, I, I, did, I don't think I said it's not good to make new bad guys. I think it's always great to have new bad guys. You've got to keep repopulating that pool. But at the same time, some of the 70s bad guys are influenced by the times in ways that don't really hold up terribly well nowadays. Rocket Racer, anyone? Who was the disco one? 
that he fought in an issue of Peter Parker, the Spectacular Spider-Man, where they actually make Peter wear the white suit, black shirt that John Travolta wore in Saturday Night Fever. He's he's a terrible bad guy as well. Number five, I don't like the idea that Peter slept with a married Betty. Yes, as Wolfman wrote it, that's pretty much what happens. That makes Peter an asshole, because that's huge. Same reason Batman didn't really kill the Joker at the end of The Killing Joke. Sometimes leave it up to the reader is weak. Um, yeah, the whole Marv Wolfman having Peter sleep with a married Betty Brown is, is problematic at best. But again, Peter's not a perfect guy. And you know, if I'm remembering the scene correctly, it was Betty that led him to the bedroom. You know, he could have said no, but he didn't. Because, you know, man. Great stuff. Keep up the good work. Well, thank you very much, Rob. You two made it into the 200th episode. Hope you all enjoyed that. Hope you're all tearing your hair out at some of those rankings. <laughs> you two can email at heykidscomics at virginmedia.com to tell me how wrong I am. Uh, and I'll be back soon. I have no idea what with. This is the 200th episode. I'm taking a bit of a break because I'm going on holiday for a bit. Um, won't make any difference to you guys, I don't guess. Uh, and I'll see you all real soon. Everything looks like it's going to be okay. More or less. Take care. Goodbye.